Well, I was sober in the beginning of the pandemic. I went into treatment just before COVID was really bad. I, I actually caught COVID in treatment. You're listening to Duluth Story Project. True stories from our community, plus the very special journey of a raccoon named Bob. All told by artists. This is Adam's story. They all had these mask mandates, you know, like, we all had to wear them, but they were really relaxed. We were all, like, thinking we were, you know, like, safe not wearing them around each other because it was... It was a pretty closed group besides the few workers that would come in and out, like the one or two workers that we would see. So, I mean, we were all in there, you know, with our masks down most of the time. You know, sometimes you put them up, but we ended up noticing that all the workers started wearing double masks. And then we ended up seeing someone in a cloth suit one day come to find out there's one person with COVID in the building. So, So then we all started wearing our masks, right? Like, we were really freaking out. And then one morning, I, I wake up and, and ask someone, where's this guy? Some guy on my floor. Oh, he got brought to the hospital. He couldn't, he couldn't breathe very well. We find out someone in our unit had it, and, and we didn't know. I didn't even know I had it while I was there. I thought I was completely fine. I mean, after we found out, I was like, hey, I want, I want to get released as early as I can because I was almost done with my 28 days, but I was like, if I can get out of here any earlier, you know, like 26 days, because I don't want to be in there with that. Like, we also all got COVID tests in there. I wanted to know before I, I went home to my dad, if I have COVID, I'll stay. But if I don't have it, I'm going to go. The morning I was leaving, I had asked the head nurse, do you, do you know if my test came back? And she said, well, we would know if you had it. You're good. So, okay. So I, so I go home that day. I mean, it it was kind of funny because I get home, and I like to smoke a little weed, right? You know, and I smelt it, and I couldn't smell it. So I go to my dad, and I'm like, "Hey, can you smell this?" And he's like, uh, "Yeah." <laughs> And, and then we give each other that look, you know, like we're both just like stone faced because I can't smell it. And then he goes to grab a bottle of alcohol and is like, hey, can you smell this? And I'm like, no, no. And then he, <laughs> and then he goes to the fridge and he grabs, because he knows I hate garlic, he, he grabs a, a little jar of minced garlic and takes a spoon of it. And he's like, eat that. <laughs> and I couldn't taste it at all. So now I'm like 99% sure I have it because I can't taste or smell. That's, you know, like one of the first symptoms of it, right? So we go immediately to get me a COVID test, find out within 48 hours, I do have it. I had gotten two tests, you know, before they took the one at at treatment. And I had also gotten one a week prior at the hospital when I was in the hospital. But I find out about a week after being home from treatment that both of those were positive too. But I didn't get the results until after I was home. It was very frustrating. I, I tried to call the treatment center and was like, what the hell? I mean, they wouldn't really say anything. Like, I tried to speak to the head nurse. They told me, we would, we would know you're good. And, and when I called, she wouldn't even talk. 
I think a lot of the staff, I think it got bad. At the end of my stay there, the, the main counselor wasn't coming at all. She told us, if it gets bad, I can't come in. I'm around my mom, and she'll die if she gets really sick. So I was, I was like really mad that they made me feel like I was safe to go home and then find out literally as soon as I get home with my dad that I have it. I don't, I don't really know how I didn't notice it there though. Like, you know, like I had been eating and everything. I, I, I don't know how I didn't notice anything. So here I am trying to get sober. Now I'm in treatment with COVID-19 <laughs> and like, we don't, we don't know ex- exactly everything about it, right? Like, it's still pretty early on. I was torn between what to do. I-, I wanted to leave early, and all the counselors are like, well, if you leave before your 28 days, it's, it's not going to work. But I felt like I had got what I needed out of that stay. And after I went home, I was, I was still doing pretty good for a little bit. Right when I got out of treatment, the, the pandemic kind of like, it, it actually helped me stay sober because I had a reason to stay away from everybody. You know, one thing people say to help you get sober is to change the people, places, and things around you. And I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't hang out with anyone. I was staying away from those people and those places where I would normally go. So that, that really did help me a lot in stay, staying sober at first. Like, I would probably not be doing that if it wasn't for the lockdowns and COVID. My relationship with my dad, uh, it got a lot better. It's almost like a really big shift for me before and after, because before I was, I wasn't home a lot. I would, I would go out and I would get really messed up and I, I wouldn't come home for a couple of days. And then I would come home and it'd be like really awkward, but you know, it'd be like, oh, hey, you're home. Glad you're okay or whatever. But after I got out of treatment and, and, and now I'm just like, I'm home all the time and we're like watching movies together and like hanging out. Have have you ever heard of Outer Banks? <laughs> I I've watched it so many times. Um, it's almost like a teenager show. I I think it's made for a little bit of a younger audience, but I love it. <laughs> I even got my dad to watch it, and he and he also likes it. <laughs> they're like teenagers, and they're like, well, you know, they're like supposed to be teenagers in this TV show, and. And one of the dads goes missing looking for treasure <laughs> and that goes down with his boat in the ocean or whatever. So like the whole little town is like super obsessed with the treasure. <laughs> and this group of high school kids is like trying to find it. It's actually, it's actually a really good story. I'm not super educated on the pandemic, but I just, I don't think it was handled right. I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot about it, right? But like Trump said to shoot up bleach and stuff. Like he said that. It's just ridiculous. Like stuff that he would say and other, so many other things that are absolutely horrible. I mean, I would consider myself a Democrat. My dad is like a super Democrat, used to be like president of the union for a long time. Not anymore, but years ago. And so I'm probably like that because of him, but also because I, I think it's the right thing. Like my sister's husband's family are really conservative and Republican. And and when you meet them, it's just like, oh, it's just so intense. At least for me, it is. Between my dad and then my sister's father-in-law, you know, like, I 
I can see it because he's the owner of some big company in Duluth. He's like super rich, super conservative. And my dad, you know, like used to be president of the union force, you know, and we're not super wealthy. They get along well, but you can just see how they, if they really butt heads. They're too different. Like when my dad and my grandma Linda were there one time and he starts talking about pronouns and gay rights and like stuff like that. He's being just really just drop dead about it, not beating around the bush. And it's just to get a reaction out of them, you know, like seeing how they'll react to that because he knows. But then they just, they just play it cool. They don't let it rile them up. I'm vaccinated and I, I feel, I feel good about it. I trust it. I do. I mainly trust it trusted it after I asked my brother about it, who is, who is a very smart person. He's like, he's like a genius. If I don't know something and I want to know, I'll ask him his opinion about something. And that's, that's what I'll think. (laughs) So, I mean, pretty much where I got my opinion on it was him telling me that it's safe and, and it's, it's a good thing to do. I'd say life is is better than it was like a year ago, but I'm still struggling. I mean, it's it's getting better, and I've I've had a lot of successes. I've graduated, so I'm I am having small victories, but I would say still overall really struggling. It feels like it's getting better slowly. Like I'm still progressing in my life, and and it's not holding me back completely. And I feel like a year ago, I was using a lot worse. You know, I was in, I was involved with a, a very bad crowd. You know, I just didn't feel good. So now it's like, it's been more just maintaining, you know, staying at home. I'm still using, but I feel safer. And now... A seamless transition into the raccoons. We last left Bob in a tree, trying to get over a fence. Chapter 3, The Garden. Bob moved cautiously toward the end of the branch, only pausing for a moment to search for the big water in the distance. No luck. He scanned the yard below to be sure that he actually wanted to go down there. He still didn't see any people, but to his surprise, he did see the edge of a small garden box peeking from the other side of the house. So he continued on, and as he did so, the branch began to bend and dip down into the yard. While Bob wasn't familiar with the term tensile strength, he did feel that this was about as far as he could safely go. So he gripped the branch with his front paws and let the rest of his body flop off. As he dangled there, clutching the branch, his thought process went like this. First, he felt that he wasn't as close to the ground as he'd hoped, and second, that if he'd been a little fatter, he'd be closer to the ground, which he felt was a very practical example of why he should eat whenever possible. He was afraid to let go and fall towards a bit of unknown, but this was one of those situations where you really have no choice but to let go. So he did, with one paw first, hoping it would allow him to get a better view of the ground below, but as he tried to look over his shoulder, he lost the grip of his other paw and fell to the ground. He landed on his back, and though it wasn't a far enough fall to seriously hurt him, it did take his breath away for a moment. When he could breathe again, which was a rather grand thing, he thought, having just experienced the alternative, he found that he was facing the sky. 
there were no clouds and a clear view of the stars. The stars didn't seem different. Even when the people acted strange, the stars stayed the same. Bob, in addition to his mediocre climbing ability, also wasn't particularly skilled at rolling over. Mostly he just lacked any strong will to do it, and he found it tedious. But here he was again on his back, so he suffered his way to his feet. He caught a whiff and gave a sniff. There was definitely trash nearby. But despite his recent revelation about the importance of staying fat, he headed first to the garden. There was almost always trash nearby, and he felt like there was something to learn from a garden, something about the people. Bob treaded over to the garden box. As he got near, he could tell that it wasn't what he'd expected or hoped. There were no vegetables or fruits, no flowers or vines. What he found was a box of dirt. He sat back and looked on in disappointment. But that's when he saw something curious. The dirt in the middle of the box began to move, as if something was in motion underneath. It looked like a plant would be sprouting before his very eyes. So Bob inched closer to the garden box, with his eyes glued to the shifting soil. But as he came to the edge, something stopped him. It was a gentle restriction, something invisible and pliable. But Bob wasn't alarmed. He recognized this restrictive force. It was a net designed to keep critters out. Critters like him. Bob had had a few run-ins with garden box nets that had gotten really messy, so he knew there was no use trying to get inside. But his eyes were still fixed on the curious moving soil. When suddenly, the dirt broke open and... A worm peeked out. It wasn't as exciting as spontaneous plant growth, but Bob knew that if there was one worm in a garden box, then there were likely a lot more. And with some digging, he could get a full meal of grubs and worms from this box. So he... Oh. Except for the net. Right. So, the tiny critters inside the garden box were safe to do what they do best. Turn an unassuming pile of dirt into rich soil. This meant that eventually the pile of dirt would become a lush garden, beautiful and flowering, teeming with life. It would fruit and satiate, and it would be beautiful and bring joy. But gardens take patience, which was something Bob didn't have much of. So, he moved on. He gave a sniff, which drew him in the direction of a gate in the corner of the yard. The strong, trashy fragrance wafting through the air made Bob expect a garbage can would be right on the other side. This kind of gate was one which he could easily open, too. But, to his surprise and dismay, all he saw on the other side was a poorly coiled hose. He was quite certain the hose wasn't producing the trash smell, but he sniffed it anyway. Then he reevaluated and moved in the direction of where he thought the smell to be coming from, eyeing a house across the street. As he approached the curb, he saw one of those strange sticks. These small sticks weren't new. They'd been around for as long as Bob had been alive. But they were showing up more often now, and they were dangerous if stepped on. They were easy to avoid since they were an unnaturally translucent gray color and often had a bright orange bit nearby. This is Pam's story. Back in 2020, we were in an interesting spot. My husband and I were finally empty nesters. Both of our kids were in college. John was finishing his master's degree and was also a manager at the hospital in the surgery center. We decided that it was a good idea for him to complete his last two classes at the same time so that he could graduate in May instead of drawing it out until July. 
In March, we thought we'd take a little weekend getaway, and we were down in the Twin Cities, March 8th-ish, and he was sick. He had a cold or whatever. We weren't really sure. We went to the hotel, and we were having breakfast, just watching the news. All the stuff's happening in New York. You could feel the build. It's kind of moving in from the edges a little bit. The next morning, he woke up, and he really wasn't feeling good. So we went down to the hotel and said, hey, we need to check out. We're not going to stay our additional days. And they were like, good. Please go home if you're sick. Yeah, it was a really strong reaction and feeling, that feel of, oh, your disease, go away, go away. So we got back up to Duluth. He went to the doctor, and it turned out he was positive with influenza A. Two days later, his classes started online. He's working at the hospital and super busy coming home, trying to do these classes. A week later is when we got the governor's order to shut everything down. I remember being at work on the 16th of March and them saying at a meeting, what are we going to do if we shut down? And I kept thinking, this can't happen. We're in Duluth, Minnesota, you know. This thing is on the outer edges. It's more so in other countries. There's only been three people in the state, whatever. So I just kept thinking, this is totally unreal. The next day when it happened, I was in shock. My husband's whole world all of a sudden changed. Being in the medical field, just that stress and pressure, it accelerated how much he had to be at work and helping. For me, all of a sudden, as an event planner who was typically going 110 miles an hour, it felt like it went back to negative 25. I am 100% an extrovert. I like my own company. That's fine. But I'm not usually alone very much. I'm usually a very busy person. And all of a sudden, it's just me and the pets at home looking around thinking, this is crazy. I have to apply for unemployment. I've never experienced that. I've always had a job or gone out and got one. I'm also a hairstylist, so I have these skills to fall back on, except not during COVID because they were shut down, you know? So that was a, a very interesting feeling. The hospital was trying really hard to figure it all out, but there's different messages coming in from different ways. The best I could describe it is John would go and be gone 10, 12, 16 hours, whatever, and they would go and they would have their meetings and they would say, uh, okay, everybody, we're going to get our team together and we're all going to go right. We're going to go this direction. That's our plan. And this is going to be what it is. And we feel really good about going right. They make all the preparations and they would do it. And he would come home and get a text that would say, you know what? We're actually going to go left. Everybody was trying to figure it out. You know, at that time, nobody really knew. You wear a mask. You don't wear a mask. You would touch an Amazon box or you let it sit outside for 24 hours. You can touch a grocery cart or you can't touch a grocery cart. You can go to some places, but you can't go to most places. So it was just this chaos. There was nobody not affected by this. It just encompassed everybody. All the kids, the kids are in school and they don't know it's going to be their last day in person. Well, my kids were in college and all of a sudden their classes are all online. But the professors don't know how to teach online. They can't work the technology. Because my husband's been in the field for so long, he would come home and say, I'm not a hero this is what we sign up for. 
He worked in intensive care for years and years. So for him, he was just like, nope, this is just our job. This is what we do. I didn't feel extra concerned for him getting sick because he knows how to to wash his hands and he knows best practices, but it was emotionally and, and physically draining. That was more of a concern. He cared about his team. He he watched people getting laid off, which of course made no sense. You're hearing all these medical people getting laid off. Wait, but if people are sick, how are these people getting laid off? When he would come home, he'd be like, please don't have the news on. I've been hearing it all. I don't want to hear it. I just need quiet or or happy or whatever. I tried to make home a, a calming and peaceful place that was good for both of us. As for my job, I would still check my emails because, well, I cared. I had about 74 cancellations that came through within the next couple of weeks. Even for events later in the year, the uncertainty came so fast that people weren't willing to wait and see if in uh, two weeks or uh, six weeks or two months it was better. So my heart broke a little bit each time I would get one of those cancellations. Once the governor's order lifted in the spring, we were kind of able to come back and do some things. A few people would book some events, but the capacity rule was super small. You're trying to help them plan a wedding where they wanted 70 people and now they can only have 12 people. You're trying to help them be okay or or telling them it's okay to wait a year. It's very emotional in helping people plan their memories and decide what they want. Because that's really what my job is, helping to plan their memories. Life changed when John graduated in May, and we had decided that we were going to go and see our boys who were in college in Utah. We needed a break. We needed to get away a little bit. I couldn't get tickets to fly to Salt Lake, but I could get tickets to fly into Las Vegas. So we booked that, and our kids were going to come down and meet us in southern Utah. We could go do some great hiking and all that good social distance. A week later, somebody had tracked him down and said, hey, we're interested in having you come and interview to maybe be our facility administrator for this little surgery center in Las Vegas. And we were like, wow, we've actually just booked tickets. We're going to be in that area. We thought we need to be open to what's going on because there's all this uncertainty. And it turned out that he was hired. We went out, he interviewed, we saw our kids, and we were there the day the Vegas reopened. We'd never been there before, but we thought, well, if we're going to do anything crazy, I guess you go where the opportunity is. They paid us to move out there. I I just didn't see very much growth happening for me at that point. I thought, well, it gets him out of a super tense, crazy situation, which he would never have left. He really liked his boss. He really loved his team, and he felt like he wanted to take care of them. So we really did have to go that far to kind of do this crazy reset for our life. We'll get back to Pam's story in a minute. But first, The Raccoons, Chapter 4, The Strange Itch. As Bob approached the strange, translucent gray stick with the bright orange bit nearby, he changed his path to avoid it. He knew they were dangerous. Mm -hmm. It was a needle, but he didn't know much about needles. He'd never been to a vet. Mm -hmm. 
For almost as long as he'd been alive, he'd seen people use them to scratch themselves, to scratch some strange itch on their insides. But lately, he'd seen them doing it more often. He knew these were not for raccoons. He knew this from experience. It was from before, before all the people had started acting strange. Bob and his brother were in a dumpster. They had been exploring new territory that night, and they had found a dumpster they had never been in before. It was behind a bar, so it had plenty of great trash. Bob and his brother had just worked together to twist the lid off a jar of maraschino cherries. This was going to be a treat. The few cherries inside were rather mushy, but they weren't rancid and they smelled incredibly sweet. A treat indeed. Suddenly, there was a terrible boom that shook the dumpster. Bob and his brother froze. Something had collided with the dumpster. It was an animal, a large one. They heard short groans coming from outside, groans of a deep need bursting out with a hiccuped rhythm. The animal was injured. After a moment, there were a few more dulled thuds against the dumpster, and then a few more which turned into a steady stream of thuds almost as if the injured animal was knocking. And then it stopped, and there was a shuffling sound as the animal dragged itself away a short distance. Bob's brother moved to a rusted hole in the dumpster to look out. Bob was scared and wouldn't have moved at all, but his brother was braver or stupider, depending upon your point of view. Bob didn't have an opinion either way about his brother, but he did follow suit and found his own little rusted-out window to peer through. Bob and his brother did not see a big injured animal. It was one of the people, a very skinny one. He was twisting around anxiously in a back-and-forth twitch. Bob thought he was dancing at first, but this person was not having fun. He was desperate. This was the first time he'd seen the itch. He recognized the feeling of an itch. Bob got itches all the time. In fact, watching this person made Bob's ears itch. But as he gave his ears a little scratch, the person was not scratching. Instead, he was fumbling with one of those sticks. He was fidgeting with it nervously, but with a hungry focus. He then rolled up his sleeve a bit and stuck his arm with the stick. And to Bob's surprise, the person's itch seemed to fade quickly, without a scratch. The poke was scratch enough. The person calmed down and sat still for a moment. He began to cry. It would have been hard for anyone to tell if he was crying from relief or regret or shame, maybe all three, but it was virtually impossible for Bob because he couldn't discern types of crying anyway. He was a raccoon, and crying is not something adult raccoons do. The person then seemed to fall asleep, laying still for quite a while. And then Bob's brother climbed out of the dumpster. This is something Bob never would do if there were people around, but the way this person seemed to be settled now, it did make it seem safe. Bob poked his head from the top of the dumpster and watched his brother climb down toward the person. Bob's brother was right next to this seemingly sleeping soul, right where the strange stick had fallen to the ground. As Bob tumbled from the dumpster himself, his brother picked it up. They had never seen a stick like this before. It had some kind of special power to scratch a strange itch from the inside. Bob's brother sniffed it, then he picked it up and rolled it between his paws. The shiny, pointy part made it a difficult object to manipulate. He tried to rotate it with the help of his teeth, and that's when it poked him. As soon as it did, Bob's brother dropped it and jumped back with such a quick reaction that it sent Bob rushing to a nearby bush. Bob looked back to his brother, clenched his jaw a bit, and looked again at the stick, and then headed to join Bob. But it wasn't more than a few steps before Bob's brother stopped, frozen for a moment. 
He shook his head, he rubbed his face, he shook his head again, but this time with extended violence, and then he fell slowly to his back and shook some more. Now his body twitched. He made his way to his feet, but not for long. His legs moved slow and weakly, and he stumbled a bit before falling again, convulsing and foaming at the mouth. And then he fell still. Bob moved from the bush towards his brother, but just then a man and a woman rounded the corner of the building and he hid again. The two surveyed the scene of an addict and a lifeless raccoon for a moment before violently picking up a sleeping person, screaming at him and pushing him away to stumble off somehow in fear and confusion. The woman grabbed a plastic bag from the ground, wrapped it around her hand, and picked up Bob's brother by the foot. He hung limply as the two looked at him for a moment. She then tossed him into the dumpster with the rest of the trash. In that moment, even if Bob had understood the phrase, you are what you eat, he wouldn't have found it funny. The lid of the dumpster slammed loud as the people shut it and Bob bolted. Bob didn't return to the dumpster. To be fair, the thought that his brother might still be alive never once crossed his mind, so you can imagine his astonishment when their paths crossed again two months later. Bob noticed him from across an alley, did a double take, and excitedly approached. But this reunion would be short-lived. His brother's eyes had been dark and confusing. He seemed less brave now, or smarter, depending upon how you look at it. But it scared Bob, and he'd run off immediately. So, all of that is why Bob now carefully avoided the strange stick with the bright orange bit nearby that laid next to the curb. He couldn't let anything slow him down now anyway. The trash smell was thickening and taking him towards a house. A dark house. Bob was hopeful. Pam's story continued. We lived in Las Vegas for 255 days and we are really not desert people. We were there during some of the protests that were going on. It was really interesting as a Minnesotan being on the strip. The day when we were there for the interview, it was surreal to be following and surrounded by a peaceful protest for the George Floyd incident and just thinking, this happened in Minnesota, but it really is affecting people all over. You see it in the news, but when you're walking in the middle of it, it does something to you to just really open up your eyes. Sadly, after we left the strip, we would see different news clips and some things did get violent with people getting extremely upset about it. That was really hard to watch. It's great that people are out here protesting, but then that turning point where it gets violent is rough because it's ruining other people's livelihoods. Casinos were only open at 25% capacity and lots of things were shut down. Most were only open on Friday, Saturday, Sunday and closed during the week. Many weren't able to bring back their staff. You have your hire managers doing the jobs that they would typically have a team under them performing. The hotels had deals like $35 a night, $25 a night, something like that. The problem is that you're not getting in the high rollers. Many of the restaurants are closed, the celebrity chef-owned restaurants. The higher class events and conventions were totally shut down. Another problem in Las Vegas was the drug use. Because they were lessening the rates for the hotel rooms, the people who came through were there for drugs. It was really rough to see so many homeless, so many lost souls. That's who was coming to support their tourism. 
They lost all their conventions, and partying was all they had to offer. You can come here. There's maybe five or six tables open. There's parts of the casinos closed, but there's all the marijuana that you want to buy right here. So I would go to the dog park every day. That was my social place, taking my dog to the dog park. I would talk with other event planners because that's where they were too. I just watched all these conventions that would get canceled or go virtual or get moved to Texas where they could be open. I could not get hired in Las Vegas for anything. I even tried to just be a receptionist at H&R Block. I put in the application and it would say, 225 other people have also applied for this job. Our sons were a huge part of the reason that we opted to move to Las Vegas. We saw that airplanes weren't even flying sometimes. In Duluth, we lived about 26 hours drive away. From Las Vegas, it was only a six-hour drive, so it seemed incredibly close. We would encourage them to get together. They didn't live together at the time, so at least, you know, go see your brother. Go out for a walk. You have to go outside. We've always been a really close family, so it wasn't an unusual thing for them to reach out and say, I'm having a tough day. This is tough. Our youngest is a very entrepreneurial kind of guy. He found a gas mask, and one day he posted on Facebook something like, uh, I went online, and I got ordained, and I have a gas mask, so if anybody needs to get married, I'm ready. I am ready to do that for you. <laughs> or um, he went online and decided he's going to learn to tune pianos. He took these different various courses of crazy little things. Oh, his voice is now available to be rented out for audiobooks. Ultimately... We knew that we weren't desert people, and Duluth called us back home. But we took that time to really completely reset. My husband's not in the medical business anymore. We've actually bought our own little business, and now he's going to run that. I'm happy that I got to go back to working with the team I love and being their event director. So COVID gave us at least that time to sit and be quiet and then decide what we want for the next phase of our life to look like. I'm grateful for that gift because when you're going, 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 you don't stop sometimes to just sit and be quiet. In the beginning, I feel like Governor Walls really did try hard to give out the information that he had. I, I don't think he really intended to have things closed down for so long in the beginning. Oh, I, I loved his sign language lady, by the way. She was the very best of any that I saw anywhere. She was the coolest. My favorite part of all the news releases or the press releases. Then you go to a state where the education level is definitely lower than Minnesota's. There's this wide variety of nationalities and languages, and maybe people aren't quite understanding. There's a little bit of the Wild West, an attitude like, don't tell me what to do. Minnesota has a lot of great medical facilities. The amount of vaccines that have been distributed to Minnesota compared to Nevada is more than double, which I thought was very, very interesting. Why is that? Why, you know, why, why is that? My husband was like, well, you think about Mayo, the University of Minnesota, other really awesome medical facilities. The people who live here believe in those facilities and trust them. We are a medical state. We are well-educated in our schools. There's a high value of education in Minnesota. It was eye-opening for us to go to a state where education didn't feel as much of a priority. 
Nevada is more of an entertainment state. They've got casinos and performers. They know how to do backflips and throw knives and tell jokes. I'm not saying that people weren't educated. There's just a very different style. I felt like I got better information and more accurate news coming from Minnesota. Duluth Story Project is a program of Zeitgeist. All stories are verbatim, faithfully told by artists, and the names have been changed. Adam was read by Andy Fry. Pam was read by Christine Winkler Johnson. The Raccoons is written by Robert Lee and performed by Blake Thomas. Duluth Story Project is created by Mary Fox, Dennis Johnson, Alexandra Duncan, and Robert Lee, with help from Mackenzie McCullum, Amy Demmer, Sarah Luke, Gabby Mirabito, and Ari Kilgore. Sound design, music, and audio production by Blake Thomas. This activity is made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Minnesota State Arts Board, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. And from Duluth Superior Area Community Foundation, funded in part by the Anonymous Friend Fund, the Dr. and Mrs. Bernard Becker Charitable Fund, and the Living Legacy Fund, with additional support from Cartier Insurance. Thank you for listening. To make a donation and for more information, head to DuluthStoryProject.com. Now's about a good time to head back to Pam. (laughs) Pam. (laughs) Sorry. Okay.